Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Greenball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Groundbuster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Are you looking for the best suspension technology for your sport ATV? Look no further than Elka Suspension, the industry leader in sport ATV suspension technology. With championship wins in prestigious events such as the Dakar Rally, Score, Best in the Desert, ATV MX, Cross Country, and Works, Elka Suspension has established itself as the go-to choice for athletes and enthusiasts alike. But they don't just stop at ATVs. They're constantly expanding into new markets, including UTVs, trucks, SUVs, pit bikes, snowmobiles, and more. Their commitment to innovation and quality means they're always looking to improve and adapt so you can enjoy a smooth ride wherever you go. Want to learn more about what Elka Suspension can do for you? Visit their website at elkasuspension.com or give them a call at 450-655-4855. They will always be happy to answer your questions and help you find the perfect suspension solution for your needs. Cole Richardson's welcome to ATV Talk. Brother, I've been working for this for a couple years. I know you're a busy guy and I really appreciate you taking the time. I just wish it would have happened when you were a uh, non-retired ATV racer, uh, <laughs> for lack of a, a better way of putting it across. Yeah, you know, uh, like like we were just talking about before the show started here, you know, uh, I guess the correct term would be, you know, full time. You know, obviously we're not we're not committing to a full year. You know, I I can't I don't I don't want to promise sponsors and people certain things and not be able to put up, you know, my half. And, uh, you know, we, we've ventured down, you know, I guess a real job, you could say. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're, we're going to kind of focus on that. That's my priority moving forward right now, you know, establishing my future in life. And, uh, you know, we're, we're still be out there doing locals as much as we can, maybe more so than in the past because they're close to home. And, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I breathe racing. We're never going to be done. I'm going to show up when I can, whether it's on two wheels or four, who knows, but you know, we're, we're still be around and hit, hit the close races when possible. But, uh, moving forward right now, you know, with the, with the job I have, it's going to be a lot of traveling. So I don't know where I'll be and when. So it's just a matter of kind of seeing how the schedule plays out and kind of going from there. You also have an upcoming wedding, I hear. Yeah, you know, uh, I t- like I told her, my part's over. She got the ring. It's just tell me a place, a time, and where to be, and 
I'll be there. So, you know, we, we haven't fully set, fully set a date yet. You know, obviously we have some other plans we kind of want to do before we do the wedding. And, uh, it's just, yeah, we, we haven't gotten too far in the detail, well, not details, but too far into planning with that just yet. But hopefully we're looking at next year. Um, if it falls into this year, it falls into this year, but, you know, obviously getting venues, stuff like that, you know, they could be a year or two or three out. So just a matter of looking at, you know, obviously a budget and figuring out what, what date works best and when, and, uh, go from there. But that that's all, that's all her now. So <laughs> <laughs> trust me, brother, I've been there a couple of times. Uh, you're going to get sucked right on into it. <laughs> it, it it's all fun and, and, and it helps set up the rest of your life. Um, if you don't mind, uh, how did you become an ATV racer? Uh, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of us don't picture ourselves where we end up, you know, obviously we all have dreams and want to become a professional racer someday. And, you know, you go through high school and maybe the teachers, you know, get a real job. That's not possible. Stuff like that. So there's a lot of doubters and, uh, you know, there, there's right and wrongs with it. And, you know, everybody that, you know, it, it there's positives to each side, but, uh, I, I've rode all my life. Um, growing up, we really didn't have the money to race. Um, we, I kind of waited until I was 16 actually to race the 450. And, um, I raced local races about when I was, I think end of 08, early 2009, I actually started racing. Um, but it was more so I had a buddy of mine, Justin Boron that actually got into it. His uh, dad and him invited me out to race, always rode growing up for fun more like mud bogging and you know how kids are and that type of stuff and uh got invited to a local cra hair scramble which honestly has put out a lot of xc1 guys from johnny gallagher walker fowler me josh merritt a lot of us and uh started in 2008-9 there uh just kind of fell in love with it and it, it kind of took off from there just more so having a place to ride every weekend which is great with cra you know we we kept going every weekend every weekend getting better and better and uh Eventually, finally built a bike um, around 2010, started riding that. My dad got a 450. I kind of stole that from him, he says. So I think I was about 16 years old for two years in CRA, <laughs> running a 450, you know. But, uh, you know, we, so we kind of started on a 450 actually around 14, 15 years old, just riding and doing some locals. And um, once we, we kind of kind of fell in love with it a little bit more, became more established. You know, my dad gave me the shot. He was like, Hey, you know what? If you want to try this, you know, when you turn 16 and GNCC allows, let's, let's give it a shot. But you know, if you're going to do this, you know, let's put all into it. And, you know, started halfway through 2012 there did not have a good year. I actually grabbed my first hole shot ever at big buck. First GNCC got the hole shot. I think I DNF'd after lap one, something let loose in the motor. And, uh, you know, so 2013, honestly, was actually my first full season from round one to round 13. So 2012 was a learning year for me. I raced in College B and uh, probably should have stayed in College B, but I figured, hey, let's move up to College A and get as much experience as we can, see what I'll be dealing with in the future, um, and just kept progressing from there. And um, I got my first win in 2013 at Limestone 100. I can't remember what round it was. And I ended up, I think, 11th overall. And uh, pretty much from that point forward, you know, things just kind of kind of took off from there. So <clears throat> you went to College A. When did you go to XC2? Right after? Uh, yeah. So 2013, like I said, first full, full committed season. I did every single round. 
I think now I, I'm going to be within two to three points here, but I'm pretty positive I lost by one point or three points. I can't remember. It was right in that range. I lost the College A Championship in 2013 to Marshall Goings. And then um, 2014, we decided to make the jump to Pro-Am. And, man, it, that's that's a memorable year. Marshall will tell you the same thing. You know, uh, we had a heck of a battle down to the last race. We actually ended up tied going into Ironman. And it was wild because that was the year that Boric and Walker were tied going into the championship. So not only was Walker and Boric tied for the championship at Ironman, Marshall and myself were tied. So I think that was the first time in the history that XC1 and XC2 were both, both classes were tied. And it was winner take all at uh, Ironman. And it was especially tough because Marshall lives I don't know exactly, but five minutes from Ironman, that's his hometown. <laughs> so uh, I, I knew we were going to have our hands full, but we just went in with the mindset that we're not even going to give him a chance or opportunity. And uh, we ended up actually getting a pretty big gap. Can't remember three, four or five minutes or something like that. And ended up actually taking championships. So, but yeah, 2013, 2014, right in the Pro-Am. And uh, around that time I was riding for Randy Hawkins and Yamaha and they, um, Kind of wanted me to stay back in Pro-Am, you know, and, and I agree on that. A lot of people didn't, but it was my third full season and people thought I should move up. But I, I honestly don't think I was ready at that time. How old were you at that time? So 2014 was my senior year of high school. So I was 18. Third year racing. And you're in 2015. I don't remember. I know you won two. Did you win them back to back? Yes. Yep. So lessons learned, I would say that, that did you dominate in 2015? Yeah. You know, we, um, I was hoping the Ty Walker's record there, you know, Walker took me in honestly around that 2013 time. I was very fortunate to grow up. Oh, I think he's about 15 miles from me. So 20, 25 minutes of a drive. Um, he was racing locals a little more at the time. He took me under his wing and uh, very fortunate to have him kind of show me the ropes. And, you know, whenever Walker texted me, he was riding. Guess what I was doing? I was riding. You know, Walker was the guy at the time. And honestly, you know, my, my mindset was whatever Walker's doing, I'm doing because whatever he's doing is working and I want to be him. So, you know, I, every day he was doing something or texted me to ride, I showed up no matter what. So um, it was very fortunate for him to take me under his wings and, um, uh, where were we at there? I kind of lost my train of thought. Well, we were talking about your 14, 15 season. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, 2015, I was hoping to time there. And uh, I think we got to round 10 and something happened and I DNF'd. So, I, yes, that's correct. So, around somewhere around round 10, 11, I DNF'd and I won every race up to then. So, at that point, you know, I couldn't tie Walker's record. We tie, We wrapped up the championship at Somerset. And I moved up to XC1 for the last two rounds. And that was Powerline Park and Ironman. Um, and I moved up in, at Powerline. I had an electrical problem on the start. Long story short, chopped that race. Wasn't very good. So I consider Ironman being my first XC1 race as far as not having an issue and kind of seeing where I stand. And we were actually able to finish second overall. 18 to 25 seconds if i remember behind jared so um was actually able to get second overall if you want to say my second actual xc1 race and uh you know kind of from there didn't have too many good years after that had some you know some 
problems with being sick and then wrist surgery and some, you know, other issues and kind of took me a while to get the ball go- going back there. But, uh, yeah, 2015, I guess you could say we were pretty dominant. Yes. You know, Steven, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. That kid did, did some damage this year, didn't he? Yeah. I think he was about the same as me. I think he got 10 or 11, 10, or I, I can't really remember. Maybe it was I Jade. I got to 10. Well, there was 12 races and he won uh, nine for sure. Got okay. And I think he had an issue too. Got a second. And I think he didn't race the last two. Uh, he moved up to XC1. Right. Yes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He race the last ones there. He ended up number eight for the year. Yeah, yep, he did. He had a phenomenal year. I know Stephen pretty decent, and uh, no, he's a great kid. You know, he has a lot of potential. Has a he has a little work ahead of him. Obviously, with any of us um, coming from XC two to XC one, it's a whole nother animal. You know, I feel like I fared pretty well when I stepped up, but you know, when we got into that first full season, I struggled a little bit. You know, when Walker moved up, he had some good races. Struggled a little bit, Hunter. So, you know, it is a different animal when you're starting with those guys versus having a time adjustment. And, you know, being the XC2 riders we are after winning a championship, we we think we're just going to step right in and do as, you know, do as good as we were. And it's really not the case. It's actually a lot harder. And a lot of people, you know, will come out of XC2 and they'll be getting sixth, seventh overall. And then they step into XC1 and now they're eighth, ninth or tenth overall because they're, they're not used to running from the start with us and are used to kind of having that time adjustment and always seeing and chasing that person in front of them. Yeah. And, and don't you, don't you think that the pace different at the front is, is different. So you're, you have to get used to riding a harder pace. Yeah. You know, yes and no. I mean, XC2, you know, uh, we all came from XC2. We're all young and, aggressive and probably harder on the bike than we need to be in our first lap is actually easier than in xc1 just purely because the fact the track's kind of already grooved in and worn in you know xc1's establishing the track you know figuring out where to go when we get on you know new sections of the track so in xc2 honestly by the time you get going you know if you're one of the top guys you're already into the back of xc1 so it's hard in that way but, you know, the, the the track's already made. You know, you can see where everybody was already going. You don't have to second guess to make sure you're following an arrow within reason, obviously. But, you know, when we get to those PM only sections, you know, there might be 10, 11 guys in XC1 that already went through that section and defined the trail. So, you know, there's a lot of time to be made up when you're in XC2 that you can get. And inevitably, you know, that time adjustment really, really can help you. And I think that's why you see a lot of XC2 guys early on in the race are high in the overall. And then as the race wears on, they kind of fade back in, in some cases, not all. But um, the, the first lap in XC2 is, I, I think, definitely a little bit easier as long as you can get out front in your class. That's that's good insight and good information because not everybody sees it that way. Um, yep. I, now that you mention it, it's common sense. Yeah. That somebody paved the road for you, you know. You, Honestly, you, yeah, and and, he, and it was always fun for me because if you did get a good start, and Stephen was very good at starts, and in 2015 I was good at starts. I don't know what happened to me after that, but <laughs> you know we had very good starts, and uh, you're, you're always catching somebody also. So you know if you're out in XC1 and you're leading the race, you know you don't have anybody to pace off of, and only select few of us I feel can really push when nobody's around, and that's what sets a lot of us apart from some others. But when XC2, you know, when you're looking a mile or two up ahead of, you know, up up ahead on the track 
know, you have 12, 13 guys, however many is an XC1 ahead of you, and you can see them once you get close enough. So you're you're always pushing to catch that person, and you, you don't realize it. But, you know, I think mentally it makes it easier because it, it keeps your mind busy. And you're like, all right, I want to catch him. I want to catch him. And then you keep working up into XC1 versus when you get an XC1 and you lose that guy, you're probably not going to see him again unless you have the speed to catch him. So you you don't have, you know, people to really work off that first lap like you would in XC2 to kind of help you get towards the front in the overall. Do you think that the pressure you felt in XC2 is double when you go to the front line? Yeah, I, I think the pressure is a little bit more on the front line, you know, especially when coming from somebody like myself and Walker and Hunter and now Steven and Jay and all those guys, you know, when, when you have a dominant year in Pro-Am, you know, the pressure's on. You know, people see you getting in the mix on the overall from XC2, and when you get to XC1, you know, a lot of people are going to say, oh, he ain't going to fare well, or, oh, he's going to do great. And you honestly don't know where you stand coming out of XC2 until you line up. And honestly, making that transition from XC2 to XC1 is actually, honestly, probably harder than winning the championship um, in XC2. Uh, but once you do become established in that XD1 class, you know, then you have the next hoop to jump through, which is, you know, maybe you're a mid-pack guy at that point. Now you got to jump through the hoop to try and get to that 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 next step because, you know, and as you can see in the results, you know, XD1 almost has its own classes within itself. You know, you have the top four or five guys that might be four or five minutes ahead of fourth or fifth, depending on races or sixth. You kind of have like your your groups of XC1, and you know it, it, you almost have to work. You know you might be in the back XC1, then you work to the fifth, the eighth XC1, and then now you're trying to stay with the first, the fourth, and you know. So in, in my opinion, it's it, you actually have multiple classes in XC1 sometimes. So after you became an XC1 rider, did you and Walker get to work together as much? Yeah, we did. But, uh, you know, I think Walker's words back then where he was creating a monster. So, <laughs> you know, I think I think he kind of put me to the to the side there for a while. But uh, no, you know, Walker's a great guy. You know, we just kind of both got in our own groove and uh, I, I was under his wing forever. And obviously I didn't expect any handouts once I moved up. We still rode together on occasion, maybe not as much as we did. But um uh, and uh, Walker's a great guy. You know, we, we, we did funnel out there for a while, but I, I also was the same way. It's like, you know, I, I know I can put in the work to be on top and he knew he could. And obviously we can help each other, but helping each other, you know, in my opinion, you know, Walker was still already a step ahead of me. So if I could not ride with Walker, I knew I could stay on track and on a program myself that, you know, if he started to slack a little bit, I knew my discipline was good enough to kind of maybe close that gap to get a little bit closer to him. But obviously Walker's still Walker and, you know, he's no slouch. He's been at this a long time and he's, he's fast His work ethic's great. And, you know, I wish him nothing but the best this year. I've seen him actually uh, in Florida. I just got back from Florida and Vegas um, and saw him ride a little bit and stuff like that. And he's looking good. He knows he's going to have his hands full, but you know, Walker is determined and uh, he's, he's looking better than ever. Well, let's get back on your show. And what do you do and what? how do you keep yourself in condition? Uh, I mean, I think what you guys do is super grueling and it's got to be hard on your body. So you have to go through an extensive training program. Yeah, I, I mean, what I'm trying to get at is you can't just go throw some weights in the gym. 
there's got to be a, a detailed setup for you, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, you know, and I, yeah, that's something that takes, honestly, years of trial and error. You know, you, you can't be like, hey, I'm going to work out this month and see if it works. You know, when, when you make a commitment to a year or a training program, you know, you, you sacrifice almost that year. You know, things don't happen overnight. So if you're going to focus more on gym-oriented stuff and less riding, you're, you know, you're going to sacrifice that year. Maybe you focus more on riding and less gym. There goes another year. So honestly, finding that balance, you know, to to see what works best for you is a lot of trial and error. You know, I've made the mistake where I did way too much gym stuff, not enough riding, did way too much riding, not enough gym stuff, way too much cycling, not enough this. So for me, you know, I, I found that balance. But as far as like, you know, going to the gym, cycling, and obviously seat time is irreplaceable. You know, it, it, if you could only pick one of the three, and you had the daylight and the time at some point, if you could go, I guess my thing is if you had hour daylight left and you had the option to do the three, getting that hour of riding in is way more important than the other two. Not saying they aren't, but seat time, seat time, seat time, you know, you can't, you can't get any better, any, any closer than just seat time, honestly. But as far as everything goes, you know, it, it does take, it does take a good balance because you can ride too much and burn yourself out. You can work out too much and burn yourself out. So it, it, there, there is, I guess, a really good balance you got to find there. Some people, you know, working out might work better for them more than riding, but uh, everybody's different. And it's just a matter of honestly trial and error. How do you keep track of your speed when you're riding? So, the question I'm asking is race pace is different than practice race pace. Yes. Because when you're practicing, you're never going as fast as you do when you race. Oh, no. And it's it's hard to mimic that. You know, I I, I do my fair share of locals and even from practice to locals and nationals is a whole nother animal. And uh, I'm a pretty good local racer. You know, I have can hold my ground. And honestly, I think I've beat Walker at every local and he'll even tell you the same thing. Then we go to nationals and he would smoke me and I'm like what am I doing wrong but uh no it's it's hard you know a lot of us have you know watches that can track um your overall time you can click it to do lap time watch your heart rate you know sometimes when I get too involved with numbers it messes with my head not in the right way so for me you know I, I kind of use it more during the winter so I can kind of keep a little more on track with my riding and kind of see where my lap times are when I come down versus before the season, just to see if I've improved, you know, through that hour moto or two hour moto that I do. But, um, as far as just watching the speed, it's just making sure I'm honestly fit. I'm feeling good. when I cycle, I'm recovering properly. And every time I ride, you know, I'm, I'm hitting my marks and, you know, if, if I think the one track I had this year, four laps was like an hour, four minutes on my property or something. So, um, I knew if, if I, uh, was able to keep no matter the conditions and stuff, able to kind of run at that hour four pace or faster every time and kind of, you know, it, it's kind of hard on the wood side of things. Cause there's so many different factors versus on a motocross track, you know, a lot of those guys either have somebody there for a shorter moto, giving them pit boards. And I've done that. And, but it's it's kind of there's a lot of variables on the wood side, you know, because I can go ride a day and it could be super wet and obviously I'm going to be a lot slower or super dry a lot faster. So, you know, you have to take in um, kind of the weather or track conditions into consideration when you are kind of watching your times and lap times. But overall, you know, I, I honestly go off a of feel. You know, I, I see where I stand, make sure I'm healthy and 
just having honestly fun as well as making sure I get the time I need in. But, um, you know, I, I tried to ride four times a week and race on the weekends four to five times. But when I rode, you know, it might be some sprint laps. It might be an hour moto straight for the four days, you know, an hour one day, an hour the next. But overall, you know, I tried to get at least an hour of seat time every time I did ride, no matter how I got it. So some days, you know, we went out and we did till we ran out of gas an hour and a half. Some days I went out, hit a tree the first lap. I'm like, today is not the day. And I just rode easy the rest of the day or I put it in the truck. But um, honestly, it's it's tough to get fast in this sport. I mean, a lot of us just have, I would like to say, natural talent. But, um, you know, hard work obviously can beat that. But um, a lot of us, it's just bike setup, trying to make sure you're running the same lap times. And honestly, just getting seat time. A two-hour race is grueling, you know, so... You just got to mentally be strong, know how to pace yourself and just not give up and just kind of keep pushing forward when things aren't going your way. I agree with a lot of that. <laughs> so I've talked to other riders that use blood work and, and things like that. You're still pretty young. Are you on a strict dietary program as well? And have you got into some of the higher level deals where you're checking your blood and things like that? No, I've, I've never done that. Um, I could probably say in the past, my diet could have been better. Um, but I, I think there's really not enough money in this sport really to make me hate myself and eat lettuce every day. So, you know, I'm like, you know, there's just not, you know, I, I, I ate, I didn't eat bad. I, I probably could have done better, but for me, I've also, I was diagnosed actually with Crohn's disease when I was six. So I have a lot of stomach issues as far as that goes and a lot of things that can go wrong without me knowing and inevitably making things worse. So for me, I've always stuck kind of the same foods. I eat a lot of chicken and rice. I do eat, you know, fairly clean, but I don't go to McDonald's. I don't go eat Wendy's. I don't eat Burger King. You know, I, I do eat, I do eat as good as I can and I'm not snacking on dessert and stuff like that. So my diet is fairly, honestly, pretty good. Um, it, it, like I said, it, it could be better. I could sit there and eat certain vegetables and fruits that I probably should. But, um, as far as taking supplements that I know I should be taking, eating the right foods I know I should be eating, I do watch that and I, I do take, take it pretty serious, but not, not like some of these guys that have like a whole meal plan for the whole, whole year and they follow it T to T because, you know, sometimes just, you know, doing what you want or kind of being mentally happy actually can, I think make you perform better than just being burnt out and just not happy eating stuff. You don't want to eat all the time. And just honestly it could negatively affect you sometimes. I think. I agree with, with, with you can, you can hurt yourself as well as help yourself. Yeah. So it's, it's a balance. <laughs> you, you, you told me that you have a, a disease. Has this affected your racing in any way, shape or form? Um, to be honest, I couldn't tell you because I've had it since I was six. So this is how I've always felt. I don't know what normal is, I guess you could say, but honestly, it, 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 it I would like to think that it hasn't, but there has been times that, um, you know, my stomach, I might've had a flare up. Honestly, Mason Dixon this year, I threw up going over the finish line, not because I was out of shape, not because I ate something just purely because I, I you know, my stomach just something happened and I just started, honestly just throwing up over the finish line it's actually pretty pretty unique video but honestly with crowns you know the, the thing with it is is you can have a flare-up whenever and you don't know what causes it and you could eat a certain food it can cause it a lot of stress can cause it 
Um, there's a lot of different factors. I've been very, very lucky and fortunate um, compared to others that, you know, have it and stuff like that. So I, I want to say that it, I, I would like to say that it hasn't affected my racing, but I'm sure in certain scenarios it did hinder at me a little bit. Um, and it does make it a little harder for myself, I think, than some others. But um, I would like to think that, no, it, it, it hasn't hurt me, luckily. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, I know some other riders uh, that I've worked with didn't find out till after they were past their um, basic pro time that they had a deficiency and, and got it fixed. And they wish they could go back in time and race feeling the way they do now. So, yeah, that, that's that's pretty awesome stuff. Um, you You have developed or evolved in life with asking your girlfriend to marry you, your fiance now, uh, working on a home and a, and a regular job. When you get ready to go to work, your mindset from racing, how does that help you in your everyday uh, working career? Uh, you know, you know, luckily I have um, a family business to fall back on with my dad and, uh, I honestly didn't really know where I'd fit in there and stuff like that. And like he said, he's like, you know, if you can convince people to pay you X amount of money to race a four wheeler, you can convince people to buy some radiators, which essentially is, you know, the, the business here. And, uh, so honestly, I'm, I'm in outside sales and customer relations, which honestly goes hand in hand with racing as far as, you know, emailing sponsors, keeping in, in contact with them, making sure, you know, you're doing your part to help them. And inevitably the sales side, you know, I, I need to be able to convince, you know, Kenda Tires is one of my biggest sponsors. I still have them on board. And, uh, you know, for, for me to sit here and like, if you're, if you're Kenda, you know, convince you, you know, why you should pay me or invest in me and stuff like that. So, you know, sales and racing do go hand in hand, um, customer relations, keeping sponsors happy. So the mindset of, being able to sell myself honestly kind of correlates with sales in a workplace. Um, but inevitably, you know, the, the mentality to be able to want to be the best at whatever I'm doing. And, you know, that's one conversation I had with my dad and um, he didn't know I was actually going to retire. You know, we've talked about it. My girlfriend, fiance, didn't know I was actually retiring until I was about to go on stage at the banquet. Um, so, you know, it, it, for me, this decision wasn't persuaded in any way by nobody. I wanted it to be mine. And, um, you know, like, like I told her, if I'm going to do this, you know, I, I want to put a hundred percent effort. And that was always my mindset, um, with racing was if I'm going to race, I'm going to put a hundred percent of my effort into it and do the best I can at it. And I feel like we did, you know, I, I wish we could have some more years. There's always going to be regret, but, you know, we tied our best number at number three, we got to retire, tying our best number. So I, I've done the best I have this year again. So me retiring number three versus let's say I stick it out another year, end up another number seven, eight, ten, and then I'm forced to retire. I'd rather much retire on number three. So you know, we we, uh, we, we made that decision to step away, and that's what uh, you know I told my fiance and dad at the time. You know, it's I, I want to put a hundred percent in uh, making a future for myself. Obviously, her and eventually family down the road and setting up for my future. And, um, so for racing, you know, it's, it's always been, you know, you put all your heart into it and, you know, that's something that I want to take into, into the job and into my career is put my heart into it, you know, try to succeed the best I can be the best I can. And, um, kind of just take what I've learned from racing as far as being confident, 
you know, putting all your effort into it, your discipline, your dedication to that, and kind of transferring that into a different aspect of life, I, I guess you could say. A disciplined lifestyle that you've learned over years through racing. Yeah, and uh, so far having a job's a lot less stressful. <laughs> and I actually get the, I actually get the, I get the I get to keep my paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> at least to you, at least till you go ride, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but no, and, and all joking aside, you know, it's it's they they both have their their positives, and I, I've told people plenty of times you could you could start my life over, write me a blank check, and I'd still choose the path I've taken, and I, I wouldn't change it for nothing. You know, I. I told my dad for years I'd rather struggle and race and have fun while I can. And I've always told people I kind of, kind of live my life in reverse. You know, a lot of people give up their younger years to inevitably, you know, save up, retire. And by that point, maybe they're older and don't get to do what they love. And, you know, life's short. You don't know how long you got. So I've always just said, I live my life in reverse. I'm going to do it while I can. And, you know, tomorrow's never guaranteed. So I had the ability to do it. My racing funded itself. It still probably could have this year, but I just, you know, I, I was okay with having the opportunity I had this last 10 years to do um do something not a lot of people could do, to be honest, and succeed to where I have. You know, a lot of people don't have that opportunity, and I'm grateful for it. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I was okay with stepping away. Well, well, we hopefully that you'll get to opportunities to come back and, and shine while you're retired. Yeah, uh, we will. We'll, we'll be back at some point. <laughs> We all know how that works. Um, yeah. Favorite event? Oh, people are probably going to think I'm going to say Mason Dixon. To be honest, sometimes I don't really like Mason Dixon, but somehow I just keep winning it every year, and I don't know why. Because I feel like I ride a lot better at other venues than I do there. But, you know, that one's obviously close to home. I'm an hour 45 from High Point, Mason Dixon. So, um, But I would have to say... As far as the action, like I, I don't always have good results here, but Iron Man's a hard one to beat. You really like that place? Uh, you know, it's just, it depends what you're going off. If you're going for like the atmosphere and the party, you're going to have to say snowshoe. You know, there's people are wild. West Virginia's wild. Snowshoe's a great time. It's a very unique experience. But for me, Iron Man's just, it's just different. You know, the amount of people you have, the hill climbs, the dirt is always phenomenal. It's never too hot, never too cold. Now we've had years like that, but most of the time it's the weather just is honestly usually perfect. And it's just a, it's a very fun track. It's, it's fast. It's rough. It's tight. Um, a little bit of everything. And it's, it's just, it's, it's very cool. You know, th those fans are diehards and there's, it's the biggest race of the year for a reason. And, uh, Iron Man's just, it's fun because, <sighs> I guess it goes hand in hand because it either can be fun because most of us are wrapped up and can't really move into points. So it makes the racing more fun and less stressful, or it's more of the grind. Like I was in 2014 or even this year to where, you know, a position can make a difference and let you move up a position and you're not locked in. So sometimes, you know, th those guys that are locked in, in the points would rather just race and have fun the last race and kind of battle in the fields for fun. And it, it you know, so it's just a unique race, but um, I, I would have to say Ironman. That's pretty cool. What's your most memorable race? I'd have to say my first win, Mason Dixon. I mean, that one, you know, definitely that was 2018, the first time I think. Yeah, first time we actually raced there. And, um, well, first time 
in a long time that we've raced her, I guess you could say. But um, I, I would say the first XC1 win, you know, that was actually the year I came off a of wrist surgery, missed the whole year, and, you know, was able to come back and, you know, get that win. And inevitably, me and Walker actually pretty much battled to the finish. You know, he took the lead, then I took the lead, he took the lead, and we actually kind of worked together, got out front, and at that point, it was him versus me. And uh, it just felt good being able to best, you know, the number one guy at that time and get 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 my first win and you know he was actually super pumped for me which was awesome and mason dixon that that one meant a lot that's so cool was it expected or could you feel it coming or was it just your day that's a good question dude we got the whole shot so that started out great obviously getting a good start obviously gives you very good vibes i guess you could say going into the race and um we just kind of were clicking off laps and we felt really good. Walker caught me. I let him around actually, cause I didn't lead many races at that point in my life. So I'm like, he knows what he's doing. Let's see if we can stay with him. Cause you know, Walker was always really good at getting a good start and getting away and then having to force people to catch him. So I knew if we worked together or I could follow him, you know, if I got tired at the end or so be it, whatever, I would have enough of a gap on let's say third place. So my, my ultimate goal was to stay with him. And it was funny because he was faster on the first five miles and I was faster on the second five miles. So what we actually did, you know, cause we are, we are, we're, we're good competitors, good friends. He let me around on the half of the track that I was faster. And then I would let him back around. And then obviously at some point, one of us got the short straw, but you know, we actually worked together to get that gap on everybody else. And then it just became him and I battling and, um, it just, I felt like it was, it was going to be my day. And I actually, I think I messed up. He got around me, kind of got away. And then I messed up or he messed up, got around him. And I think we had, oh, I don't know, a mile and a half to go or so. And I blew off the track. I don't know what happened to him at this point. Cause he wasn't behind me again yet. And I think I just got back on the track and had some lappers going into the finish there. And I, I was like, I swear if this lapper lapper gets in my way and screws my race, I'm, I was going to be so upset, but, uh, I don't know, you know, it's, you, you, you have, you always expect to win, especially, you know, being dominant in XC2 and all the hype around you and stuff like that, you know, it, it was expected. And, um, but when it does happen, it's like, you, you don't, it's, it's just a different feeling. It's like, I expected to win, but I might've not have expected it that day, but it happened, I guess you could say. I wanted to ask you this question. You you came off two very successful seasons in XC2. And, you know, the joy of winning is the joy of winning. It doesn't matter if you're XC1, XC2, or, you know, riding in the beginner class. Um, how much does that affect your mindset, you know, winning, 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 and then not winning? Um. I guess you could say for me, I mean, my thought process is a little bit different maybe than some people, you know, a lot of people might come out of XC2 and expect just to win right away. In my case, I was winning my class, but I wasn't winning XC1 in my opinion. So, okay. I was winning my class, but I wasn't winning the race. So for me, you know, I, I knew I had a long ways to go and I wasn't winning the overall of the race. So yeah, we're winning XC2, but we're not winning XC1. So um, to me, it was just kind of like a clean slate. You know, I, I've never raced XC1, nor have I ever won XC1. And I, I wanted to win, and I was able to do that in XC2. So honestly, I kind of treated each class as itself. And uh, 
I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it is mentally tough because you are used to being on the box, you know, on a bad day, maybe, or winning on a bad day at some point in XC1 even, and you can't really have that in XC1. You know, you have a bad day, you're 8th, you're ninth, or 10th, or whatever, or, you know, you have a good day and you might be lucky to get on the podium at some point. So it's, XC1's a, it's a different class and it is a little bit tough, but um for me, it's like, you know, I, I, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be Walker and Boric at the time. And I, I wanted to be number one, obviously, at some point in a championship, which we weren't able to achieve. But to, to be honest, you know, I, I started, you know, just little steps at a time. You know, we were happy getting, I guess, fourth or fifth at some point. And then I was like, I, I just want a podium. And then I would get third and I'd be as excited as if I won the overall. And it's like, now you became excited just to get third. And then you're like, okay, well, I got a taste of third. Now I want to get a win or second and it's just a never-ending cycle you know and uh that's what you know josh merritt's a good buddy of mine same thing happened to him you know he had that really good date to penton and i remember his words were if he ever got on the pro podium he was retiring after that race so i told him after the race i was like what happened he's like well, well now i want to win i'm like well that's what happens you get you get on the podium and he's like well if i ever win a race i'm retiring on the podium i'm like well i hope it comes to that josh because what's going to happen he's you're going to win and then you're going to be like well i want to win again <laughs> you know so it's just a never-ending cycle you know we all want to be on top and it is tough going from class to class and winning and then not winning and some people can deal with that better and you know some people can't how tight is the xc1 class as far as off the track? Um, honestly, I, I don't think we're like, you know, motocross, supercross. Um, I think the ATV motocross might, you know, that side's a little bit, you know, not as friendly with each other. And, you know, they, they don't really hang out on the outside of the track. Some of those guys do, but I, I think, um, and I could be wrong on that, but I think as far as GNCC goes and being a professional athlete, you don't get much closer than, what we have in our series, I guess you could say. Um, now you throw some more money on the line, maybe that changes. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, first and second place, you know, it's a 200, 300 buck difference, not even or whatever it is. And, you know, we're, we're not out here racing for millions of dollars, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, like back in the heydays when all the factories were involved. And, you know, we, we have respect for each other. You know, we're, we're all mutually nice to each other, whether we're friends or not. You know, none of us are you know, tweeting stuff at each other or posting bad things. You know, we, we let it hang out on the track, whatever happens on track happens on the track. When you get off, you know, your friends, but, um, I would say most of us are a lot closer than any other series as far as professional sports that, you know, we, we can, we can mesh and get along in any atmosphere. It seems like it from the, uh, being able to talk to some of the other guys in the class that you ride with each other, you guys, you travel with each other and you're on different teams and it doesn't matter. You're still friends and you're still going to, to the same places and, and doing the same things. Yeah. And, you know, there's been times where, you know, I might be DNF'd on the side of the track and let's say Walker, Josh, Bryson, you know, maybe whoever comes through and they get stuck beside me. We, you know, I'm not going to sit there and not help. You know, I could sit there and be like, Oh, this is good points today for me. Like, they're not going to get out without my help. You know, the first thing, honestly, any of us do, and I, I would I would vouch for every single guy on the front line, if 
you, you could help that person out to let them get points. They're going to do it. They're not going to sit there and not help you. You know, we're always willing to lend a hand. Um, I think Bryson had a problem this year. My dad ran over and helped him. I had a spindle shaft bend at the first Ironman race, um, the Hoosier. And next thing you know, Adam McGill's dad's in my pit. Bryson's dad's running over. Danny Fowler's there. My like, you know, we're, we're you know, even though we're competitors, even the families are there helping each other to get, you know, somebody else's son out on the track, you know, even though we're competing. So it, it's honestly really a really cool series as far as that goes. You know, we're not out here to cut each other's throats and take each other out. And we're just out here to do the best we can. And honestly, if the best man wins, the best man wins that day. Uh, that's what it's, that's what it's supposed to be about. Uh, I understand the money part. Uh, I think the more money that comes into it, the, the less willing everybody would be to be so tight. You know, yeah, and you know, I could be wrong on that, but you know, you, you throw tens of thousands of dollars in a maybe a position from first to second, you know, that, that's a good chunk of change to be willing to risk a little bit of a you know a riskier move, I guess, to make a pass or shove it in to get another position at the finish line and potentially take somebody out on accident or you know, stuff like that. But um as far as far as it goes, you know, it's 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 a friendly series, honestly, it really is. Well, there's not that many. You guys are basically racing open wheel because all you do is run heel guards. Nobody's running Nerf bars, right? Uh, most of us run Nerf bars now. I've always ran Nerf bars because I run my ankle over if I don't. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, most of us, honestly, I'm pretty sure everybody almost everybody runs Nerf bars, bars now, except I don't know if McGill's running Nerf bars yet. Borch never used to, but I think she, I don't know if he has them on now or not. A lot of guys have converted to them just because the whole shots seem to be getting a little more wild and nerf bars do help you kind of keep people from getting tangled up with you. So um, a lot of people might not run the nets like Josh Merritt. He runs them purely just so nobody gets up into the side of him on the whole shot pretty much. And he doesn't even run the nets up front on his, but um, uh, most people honestly are running nerfs nowadays. Do you do something special because you guys run in a lot of deep ruts? Do you raise your foot pegs or raise the Nerf bar heel guard system so that it keeps them out of the mud? Uh, not really. Most of us have, I think most of the companies have lowered pegs compared to stock. Um, most of us run a little bit lower um, of a peg set up on our YFZ. Um, but as far as a Nerf bar goes, you know, the, the objective would be is to run that lower peg height, but have the most clearance you can. Um, I haven't ran another company's Nerf bars in a long time. I've been fortunate enough to have made my own for a pretty long time since 2015. So I kind of have my own setup and trick. But as far as like the production stuff people make, I couldn't tell you if there's anything special about them. But um, a lot of us do run a lower a lower peg setup. So you make your own your own Nerf bar heel guard? Yes. Yep. Do you sell that? Nope. <laughs> it's just for you. Well, there's one thing. If you make something right, it's not going to be profitable to sell. And, you know, we, we took the time to, to make it right. And I could, I have foot pegs from 2015 that I've ran multiple seasons on that have yet to break, have yet to break a piece off of them. And they're bowled up from each quad to each quad. But when we made them, you know, we we made them out of the right material. We made them right. We found all the stress points. You know, I, I we we did it not to resell. We did it to make them last, but also be seven pounds per side lighter than most of any other ones. So it was more of 
kind of just because we could at the time and I had the ability to, we started making our own. Um, but that's something that, yeah, we just, we, it's, it's not worth, uh, putting them in the production unless you change the integrity or the material and kind of the way they're machined and made. I think I saw a post of yours about a rotor protector system or uh yeah, a rotor protecting system that you run on your YFZR. Uh, yeah, the sprocket and rotor guard. Yeah, it's a lighter duty style to the system that that I was building uh, out here for the West Coast. Yeah, you know, um, I actually sell those to everybody. I've been, I make, I, we've honestly, I can make anything for an ATV. Um, I've made my own motor mounts, caster brackets, Nerf bars. I can make a bumper. I can make a frame. I can make cases, whatever. But I've always made sprocket and rotor guards since. Well, when I got started, honestly, in 2012, because we started to find out that instead of waiting on people, it was just easier to make our own stuff, but we had the ability to. <laughs> so, you know, we started making sprocket and rotor guards and uh, walkers ran them since 2012, I'd say. Bryson's runs them, Hunter Hart runs them. So not only am I making something for myself, I'm selling it all to all my competitors, obviously, but it's something that I can sell and make money on and um, kind of help fund my program. And um but no, they're, uh, I, I've made those for a long time. Um, I sell them and you have the, everybody on a YFZ runs a dual sprocket guard versus saying, well, you know, it's just kind of what's always worked for ours. And, um, uh, we all kind of have our own different, um, skid plate designs, I guess you could say, um, different designs, different materials, just depends what you run. Um, I'm actually running still from, uh, like in the military that they use for like Humvees, that's bulletproof. So armor plate is what I'm making mine out of. So, you know, a lot of people have very good luck. As long as you tap the bolts out bigger and, you know, put a bigger bolt in them, you're, you're not going to have an issue. You know, um, everybody's had very good luck. We've ran them for years after years and have, you know, uh, they sell like hotcakes pretty much. <laughs> right. I mean, the systems that I was building out here had to be super, super durable because we were hitting yeah. rocks at such a higher mile an hour that I just had, we just kept having to make it ridiculously heavy yeah. because anything lighter duty would shatter and break. Um, yeah. And that's so. one one thing that we didn't want to give up. You know, I, I can make a lighter duty skid plate, but it's very important to have brakes. So that's one thing we didn't, we didn't give up weight on. Um, we got rid of that fourth bolt hole, but with how it sits on the YFZ, really don't need it to be honest. And so we did shave a little bit of weight there and use the three bolts and it keeps from mud from sitting in the center of the swing arm and packing up there and just staying there. But, um, that, that's one thing we didn't, didn't try and lighten up because it worked and it lasted. And, you know, it's something that's actually important that you don't want to sacrifice the weight because it's something that's necessary. So. Right. That's, I liked what I saw. It's, it's just, um, it wouldn't make it through the rocks out here. Not yeah. It's just, it's well. I worked with a young man that could break a steel ball bearing in a padded room. So I can break an anvil. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I, I, you you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 Answer me this because of my lack of a bit of being back there and dealing with it. You guys run dual sprocket protectors on each side of the sprocket. Why is that? yes? Um, just because it gives the, you know, with, with our ruts getting so deep and honestly from rocks, as funny as it sounds, snowshoe for one instance, stuff like that, it just, um, it helps kind of keep the chain on a little bit better. Um, 
it just it honestly just protects the chain and the sprocket more so than a single um because you can still get something up on the inside and hit the sprocket or the chain or snap a chain um i think most hondas i think run single side um i don't know it just seems like certain brands run single side or it seems to favor single-sided ones i've always just ran dual i think everybody on the yamaha at least on the east coast runs a dual sprocket guard setup um it's just something that we've always ran and it always have worked um like the ones i make you know we machine out as much as possible obviously not to make them weaker but you know to be able to clean out so if they do pack with mud you know the mud's able to get out of there and not throw a chain but um and it just it just inevitably helps keep the chain on a lot easier and um you know it 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 would be something else would have to be wrong or it'd be very very hard for it to get it to ride up and over it um so it 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 just kind of helps keep the chain on and kind of protects it a little bit more what do you guys do for guy you don't run a guide a chain guide no i mean well if you want to consider i mean not one that bolts onto the swing arm by no means just the one that's up front you know by the front sprocket like that little guide and um the little roller but that's that's it nothing in the back is because it doesn't have a place to connect or is it um it's more so i think it's it's been a long time since i even tested one or if i did i know i think some guys have tested one in the past but i think it hangs a little bit lower or it, it, it's it's less ground clearance for us when you get into the ruts and it's just something else that can get caught up or ripped off or you know something along those lines so it's just you know we, we've always ran a dual setup for that reason but i think if i remember correctly the actual chain it's just one more thing that can go wrong i guess or get ripped off in a rut by root by rock you know stuff like that where you really kind of deep ruts. that's kind of what i figured it, it, i'm a from the old school i love the chain guides but yeah. west coast racing is not the same oh it's different yeah you guys <laughs> i mean when you guys come out here you Oh my God, it's culture shock. And then some of the things I see that you guys do back there, that's why I'm asking these questions is because yeah. I'm always wanting to learn. You know, unfortunately, I never got to go back and actually participate in the cross country series building machines and doing things yeah. like that. So um, I know we run uh, our sprocket guards are round with no teeth. Well, that's how mine are. I don't make with teeth. Yeah, and some people back there yeah. make them with teeth. So and, <laughs> they say that it helps them get over obstacles. Yeah, but it also helps pack everything up too. Because <laughs> it seems to grab all the mud and the dirt and it'll just pack the rotor guard too. So um nobody in XC1's running anything with any type of grooves or teeth. They're all we're all running um yeah, smooth, flat, I guess smooth, flat, whatever you want to call it, rotor or uh sprocket guards. Yeah, I I just had seen some of that stuff and was like, wow, that's odd. <laughs> but you, yeah. you know, I'm different terrains and different different foods for thought. I remember yeah. when this the solid sprocket guards like that came out. I was pretty anti, but as they've developed and gotten better, you know, I, I converted because it was yeah. you know the technology got better, the the testing got better, the quality of the parts, you know, because when they first came out, they were horrible. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's probably when you were still in grade school. I was born in '96. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. So, I, I was deep into I was deep into my career by then. <laughs> so, 
but it, yeah, that's that's pretty cool that you can make parts and you have the ability to do so. Uh, I wouldn't suggest you know banking on making ATV parts for a living because it, it's a tough, <laughs> it's a tough industry. It is, and you know, it's just one of those things that you know once you kind of have a program for it and the machine's already programmed for it, it's really not hard to make more of them. Um, so it's just kind of like we we've always made them. I make my own pistons. I make my own airbox. I make my own sprocket rotor guards, Nerf bars, stuff like that. You know, they're they're fairly easy. And um, but really, the only thing I sell is my sprocket and rotor guards. But um, you know, because it, it doesn't really take much to cut out fifty sprocket guards. It you know doesn't take much time. But um, no, it's uh, I, I I've thought about that route, but I also am in the industry also, and it's it's a it's a tough industry to. I don't want to say make money because you can, it's just, it's, it's, I feel like it's headed in, and I could be wrong. It's not as strong as what it was back then. I feel like, I mean, you could have more perspective on that or insight than I do, but um, I, I did kind of dabble with thinking about, you know, what if I start making more stuff and selling it to people and kind of build something with my, my name and stuff like that. And I, I have put thought into it, but I decided obviously to go another route, but, um, like I said, you have more insight. I would say that if you're building quality parts and you have, you know, let's say four to six items that you can make relatively at the same time you do your other job and keep them in stock and it's just making you a, a, a side money, uh, I would say do it um, because you can never make enough money. Oh, for sure. As far as the industry size, um, some people are going to disagree with what I'm going to say, and some people are going to agree with me, and then others are just going to have no opinion. Um, right now, the company that I work for, we are so busy that we cannot get enough done per day, seven days a week. I, I could be a, I could be there 18 to 24 hours a day and still not get enough done if, if I could, you know, function that many hours a day. Um, granted, we've been in business almost 50 years. Um, that makes a difference. I can't get enough product to facilitate all the jobs. Um, and I can't get help, um, the kind of help I need. Yeah. So For sure. I think the industry is strong. And is growing. I think the recreational side has to come back and is coming back because UTVs are, are out of control. Well, that's that's what really I mean, I, I wanna say a, a lot of companies change direction to you know, obviously favor UTVs, but honestly that was that's when you started to see a slight downfall of the the ATV side, I feel like is when UTVs came out. And I think the factories are a big problem with it because yep. they're wanting that UTV money um, and they're not providing a new sport quad because of it. Oh, 100%. Yep. So go Yamaha. You know, I mean, <laughs> how can yeah, you at not? At this point, they're, every, everything's paid for. They're just pumping them out, pumping them out. They don't got to change nothing and uh, nope. just kind of keep them going. I, I, I wish somebody had come out with a different one and it, it was – it was funny because I was actually thinking about this with racing the other day. I was like, it would be super cool if I had the funding or something along these lines to be like randomly show up. Let's say I'm doing four races this year, randomly show up on an LTR, 
next race randomly show up on a Honda just to keep people guessing. But, you know, it's, it's, and I have looked, but it, it's kind of hard to find some of that stuff. But in my head, I'm like, you know, I'm not tied down to anything. I can go have fun. Maybe I do better than I even did, but let's, it'd just be cool to experience a different brand, race a different brand. And for me to show up on a Suzuki would get more publicity than me showing up at Mason Dixon on a Yamaha this year, because people would be like, Oh my God, he's riding something different. And gosh, if I showed up on that 250R, I'm going to, the internet's going to shut down. I mean, <laughs> people are going to it already shut down with one video. So it's like, I, I I've put thought into this stuff and I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not out here for money at this point. I don't need to perform to get money. People, even if I got last place in XC1, more people would be pumped for me taking off on a 250R than if I won another race on a 450. It's just pe- people would love it. I mean, it, it would be and that's something that I've thought about. Obviously, we've talked a little bit, and I've been turning my my brain and wheels a little bit on that. But, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe we, maybe I show up, you know, but we'll have to see what happens. <laughs> Make sure you talk to me uh, because there's (laughs) so much that comes into the two-stroke world. And there's a lot of good two-stroke minds out there. Um, Some are better than others, in my opinion, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, Uh, you'd be the first person. (laughs) uh, One of the things that um, I did see that video, which I thought was super cool, you know, that, that you were riding the 250. And I just was like, wow, that's badass. I've never no, rode one. It no, was so weird. <laughs> no offense. The only video that I like better is the one with Hannah riding the 250R. Oh, yeah. She, but she raced it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was, well, the, the, the portion I saw, she was ripping that thing. Yeah. And I, I just, I just, I love the old two strokes. The simplicity of the build versus what we build today is they, they were so much easier to work on. Yeah. You know, motor sure. I can see that. <laughs> I mean, they were lighter. They, they're just so many cool things about them. And if you get a chance, last week's episode was Adam McGill. And I know when this comes out, it's going to be a month ago, but, or better, but that's neither here. If you, if you get a chance, go back and listen to that. He, his, the the podcast portion the instagram one the instagram show he didn't talk much about it but in the in the podcast version we did when he was driving uh he talks a lot about the the two stroke thing gets into the oh yeah he he has all those figured out <laughs> yeah i mean he's uh he's definitely diehard two stroke and um i love it um mike walsh built a 300 a ktm 300 fuel injected machine Yep, I see. And I thought about that <laughs> across country. Yeah. The problem is like, you know, my, my thought was like, you know, I'd love to do that and I would do it in a heartbeat. You know, like I said, I have the ability, I can make all the mounting brackets and do whatever I need to do to make it work. Problem is I can't line up an XC1 on it because we're still OEM because I've even put in the, in the thought, I'm like, before I bought the 250R, I was looking in the, the Pantheras and uh, they have that new 600cc two-stroke motor. And I'm like, and I think they actually, when I read, cause I, I messaged them, I, I actually almost pulled the trigger and they, they send, um, 
they pretty much do all the custom stuff for you. So like when they send the motor, they make sure what you're putting it in, they're sending the mounting brackets, they make the pipe for it, everything and included with the motor, the harness, all that. And uh, I'm like, man, it would be super cool to have like a current geometry, like my race bike, let's say, and put that 600 CC two stroke motor in it because it honestly, it'd probably be really good on power from what I've heard. And they say on numbers and, it would just be unique and different because I've never even rode a two-stroke quad until I bought that 250R. <laughs> I barely even rode a two-stroke dirt bike for more than five minutes in my younger days. So for me, it was like everything that you do on a 450 that you're taught to do, you do the opposite on a 250R. You got to clutch it. You got to rev the crap out of it. So you do everything different than a 450, which I had to get used to. I'd come out of a corner and be like, I'm like, Oh, what the heck? And then, you know, start feathering the clutch, get it in the power. And, you know, it took me a while to kind of get used to that. And, uh, I, I hit the, meanwhile, that, that video I posted, I never rode that track in my life until that day. So one, I've never been there Two, I've never rode that track and three, I'm on a quad older than me. So I, I'm trying to judge these jumps and everything. And I actually hit the power band right off of the lip of one and went farther than I wanted to go in case something. And it just, it, it was, it was it was a lot of fun and I'll, I'll give i'll give credit where credit's due and i've talked to a lot of people about this when they ask me obviously the power's not there i know i can get more out of it it's not going to be like a 450 i feel like but for 1988 the to me the the center of that bike and where you sit on it as far as like the center of gravity your body positioning at all times where your feet are on the pegs how you lean in like the cockpit area is by far probably the most comfortable and best I've ever ridden. Like I, I, I truly think the center of that 250R from 1988 is better than a 2024 YFZ as far as where you sit on the bike. Now we can argue motors chat or maybe, I mean, you can put chassis into this, but suspension, how it handles, I'll take a 450, but that center area of the bike, and how the plastics are and how you like you contour the bike and how you sit in it, I would take a 250R. Um, I think that the ergonomics of it are really good um, myself. I like, but I also like the modern Yamaha R, the way it sits. Um, I've grown accustomed to it. I also like the 450R, too. Um, the, the 0405 is a little different than the 06 up which the 0405 is my favorite but that's neither here nor there suspension wise and the way they work when you get on one of the the old school 250rs whether it be a roll or a legger that was set up correctly i do not believe that the modern day four strokes work to the level of those machines um but your shock technology has gotten so good with Axis, Elka, Fox, and there's another brand that I'm not mentioning uh, because I don't know the name uh, that they use. They use them in the cross-country series. Um, and the, the, the stuff is, is phenomenal. These guys have worked so hard to develop the suspension, you know, whether it be, you know, like I said, PEP, 
role with Elka or any of the other guys working on the Elka stuff, the Axis stuff that that they're developing, the Fox stuff that they're developing. Uh, this this for what you grew up and got to ride, the work that went into that. I think you, as a young man, you you've seen the work that you've done. Yep. But none of you guys look behind you to see all the work that was done. Oh, 100%. And that's one thing that I'm actually curious because I have uh, PEPs on there. And that's that's how I bought it, obviously. And uh, I um, the funny thing is, is I, I found a set of A-arms just uh, locally that I was able to get pretty quickly. Uh, their set of Lagers. And I can, with the length and everything, I can unbolt my YFZ shocks, put the bushings in to fit for the Honda frame. And I could literally take my shocks and bolt them directly onto the 250R. Now I have to do a rear shock at some point. So I wanted to mainly ride that bike because I wanted to experience that era per se. You know, I I wanted to ride it and just see how it was. And then I want to ride it with my twist on it as far as suspension and stuff. So I want to see what it was capable of and then what I can kind of push it to. So I, I, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a work in progress, but I, I am able to take my shocks and bolt them right onto that at this point. Once I get the arms on, and I'd be really curious to see kind of when I do get a rear shock, which I'm gonna get one made with Jim and Moda was, which I've used gonna, for years. You're not gonna be happy. You What's will that? be happy with with tuning, but right out of the box, you're not gonna be happy. Well, it's gonna be different, different speeds and different speeds that the power delivery is different. The weight transfer is different. The oh, weight for sure. Yeah. I, I didn't, I don't, I didn't, I didn't mean it from like, I'm going to unbolt and they're going to be just as good. There's going to be tuning. There might be spring rate changes, stuff like that. Oh, but there is totally it, it, it's, I would just be curious, like my current setup. Now, like I said, the rear shock, I can't make work. I just, I'm going to have to get one made, but just, just, to, just for my own, my own thing here. I just, I just want to feel the difference. And obviously I will fine tune. I have springs. I can do whatever, but I I just want to see for myself if let's say today's technology not changed for my YFZ, if I bolted onto that front end, I just want to see just for my own sake, (laughs) just for my own, my own sake and own feel. (laughs) What was the brand that you said that you work with? I run a gym at Moto Waz. He's out of uh, Missouri or Minnesota, Minnesota. So I've ran Jim for a long time. He uh, has a good uh, car background, go car background and stuff like that. And he's been in the ATV motocross for a long time. Um, and I've kind of been his GNCC guy for a long time, more of a smaller shop. But for me, me and him, you know, I've been with Jim since 2010. So I don't honestly, at, at this point, I don't care what company you go with. If you spend enough time with that company and they're willing to help you, you're you can get a shot good enough it's just you got to be willing to put in the time and test and if they're willing to give you the resources if i spend time with elka i can make them work if i spend time with fox i can make them work you know but it it takes time you know it takes years and years and years and years of testing and tuning and racing and um i've had jim for 10 years so when i when i call jim and i just start blabbing words that make sense to us riders he knows what i'm saying and he's able to make that change you know he he knows how i ride and how hard i am on stuff and i've sent him stuff back he's like i've never seen anybody do this in my entire 30 years of business or whatever and you know so i've done a lot of first things for him too but uh you know i i've been really happy with jim he he's he's an awesome guy so 
That's great. And, and I totally agree with you. If you work with that guy long enough, you're going to develop. It's just like your engine package. Oh, and, for sure. You know, the, the, the things that you develop for your machine. If you work with these people and you work with that guy long enough, you're going to have great success with it. And I, uh, uh, I commend you on, on sticking with that guy and, and, you know, sticking with the people that you do. It, it's, it's great to show the younger riders, the loyalty yep. that is, missing. you know, you can change your pants every day, but if you change brands, that's an issue because yeah, because you know now you're going to try and go back to that brand. You burn a bridge or maybe left on the wrong foot, and you know I, I try and give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I've I've passed up free product. I've passed up the same deals. I've passed up better deals just because the better deal didn't work as good as the lesser deal as far as companies or something like that. So you know it, it is about building a relationship, and um, I, I left. I, I truly only left Jim for one year, and that was in 2014 when I signed with Yamaha and Ampro. Um, I was under Walker and Randy Hawkins and stuff. And it was, I've never been on a team. It was my second year in GNCC. And, you know, I, I called Jim. I'm like, Hey, you know what? You know, they want me to run Fox. He's like, dude, I couldn't be more happy that for you. If you ever need to come back, you know, give me a call. I'll be here. And I was like, you know what? I, I just don't, you know, when I'm signing with the team and I'm under their tent, you know, I, I don't want to step on any toes. And, you know, I didn't earn my way with that team. I didn't have a championship. Once I won XC2 in that year, I, I mentioned like, hey, can I go back to my shot guy? You know, I think his stuff was maybe, maybe better. And, um, you know, I, I, my relationship with him is great. I feel like I've proved myself. I've done a lot for the team. Can I make that one sponsor change just for myself and my relationship? And they had no problem with it. And pick up in 2015 till now. I mean, I've, I've been with Jim since, you know, it was just kind of, I took that year, Jim, no hard feelings. We picked up where we left off. He was happy for me. And then I was able to win him an XC2 championship. And we just continued to, he's my, honestly, he has to be my longest standing sponsor, short of my parents. So. <laughs> sort of mom and dad. Awesome. So. Hey, Cole, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me uh, and come on the show. Um, it, 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 it's, it has been a, a long time coming and, uh, I really appreciate it. I wish you the best. The team here at ATV talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATV San Diego's body evolution and wellness center with over 17 years experience. Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. If you're in need of a consultation for your current racing program, a custom ATV, or an industry guest speaker, I have the company for you. Duncan Technologies International, Inc. offers host, MC, and guest speaking services at events. Builds custom ATVs for recreational riding or racing around the world. And they offer consulting services for professional teams or individual racers. Send inquiries to Duncan Tech International at gmail.com or call 619-987-8875.
619-716-1532 for more information. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms, and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 